To many, the word magic conjures sleight-of-hand tricks or illusions like David Copperfield levitating over the Grand Canyon. Seriously, look it up. Others see it as the product of superstitious minds vying for control in a chaotic universe. But is it all just an illusion? Or is there a very real power at play? Today, we're discussing stories of actual magic with a special guest. Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained. Stuff like Wendigo. Stargates. Ghost ships. Chimera. Intuition. Energy vortexes. Mothman. Interdimensional entities. Elves. Weird science buildings. Roswell. Sentience and plants. Doppelgangers. Dream symbolism. Stargates. Shit. Uh, wild, wild man. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> all, that stuff. Ones, all that stuff and more. Lots and more. Lots more. Um, and uh, I'm Seth Jablon. I'm Christina Callery. And today we have a very special guest. We uh, do. Tim, Tim Mucci. Is that how you say it right? Mucci? Yep. Yep. All right. Mucci. That's perfect. Tal- Italiano? Yeah. Yeah. Italiano. Hey. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yep. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm super happy I got to hear the the back and forth live. It's, oh yeah, a treat for me. <laughs> a little little behind the scenes, mm-hmm. yeah, scrambling also, to get this going. <laughs> and also, it's another Tim, so now we That's have three right. Tims. Yes, a, a, the Tim triad. Too yep. many Tims. Long, long so, no, you can't have lineage too many of Tims. Tims. That's no, That's, That's right. We just keep adding Tims to this podcast. <laughs> We had a Tim who, who did our music as well as uh, our sound engineer, and so you're our first guest, Tim. So Ooh, cool. It's a, it's a a synchronous spot. Tim. Yeah. <laughs> synchronous <laughs> Tim. Nice. Shadow well Tims. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, cool. So, so today... Yeah, uh, today yeah. we're talking about magic. But first, um, let's uh, introduce our audience to Tim. Uh, Tim Mucci is a writer out of Brooklyn, and he does these really cool graphic novel uh, ad- adaptations of classics like The Odyssey and Tom Sawyer. And he's also co-writer and producer of this hilarious sitcom podcast you guys need to listen to immediately. It's called My Roommate from Hell. And Tim, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a fully produced and dramatized uh audio sitcom basically uh featuring a demon from hell uh named beatrice and her human friend named claire and they have all kinds of adventures um they meet angels they meet mothmen they meet aliens they just have a lot of fun in brooklyn and they met on craigslist right they met on craigslist yeah yeah uh-huh. <laughs> that's where it's you really meet all your concept. demons yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah right. i'm sure some people yeah, have actually have demons on craigslist <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in brooklyn yeah it's very <laughs> funny i feel like like when i when i listen to this like it sounds like you guys are doing like like the uh sort of like radio show like someone's oh, like yeah. i picture someone doing like fully live oh, and stuff yeah, like you're 100%. probably doing all digital yeah yeah, yep, yeah yeah oh yeah it's I mean, all digital but we yeah, do yeah, yeah. try to capture that yeah yeah in the studio feel yeah 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 totally so um cool so magic before we get into magic i just want to ask you tim like about um well you know your interest in this type of stuff right like Mm -hmm. however you define that like 
you know, whether it's like mystical, magical, uh, um, weird, unexplained, paranormal, ghosts and aliens, whatever it is that like whenever you got in, interested in this type of stuff, like what, what was that for you? Uh, all that stuff. Um, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I can't remember a time where I wasn't interested in it. Um, yeah. Just when I was a kid, my brother and I were a year apart uh, and we just loved monsters, anything with monsters. Mm-hmm. My mom keeps telling a story over and over again that they, it was really easy to buy us presents as kids because they just looked for the ugliest thing on the shelves uh, okay. or bring okay. it home. So we loved yep. like aliens and space monsters and that just as I, you know, became a young adult, uh, like a teen, I mm-hmm. started like playing Dungeons and Dragons okay, and getting cool. into like the occult aspects of that, not like the for real occult, but you know, right. the the demons and devils. Uh, yeah. And the I just culture adjacent to cult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then I got very much into alien abduction literature okay. and yep. that's just carried me throughout my, my whole life. So I've just been like holistically interested in the, the humans experiencing the paranormal whatever it mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. it is it's it's a huge huge driving interest in my life like what is that that's out there that we keep yeah. rushing up against yeah totally and what is yeah what is it what does it speak to what is that like hidden thing uh what, what is it sort of a teaser of right like what is yeah. the what is behind that right right yeah because it's been around forever as long as yep. people have been around they've been talking about the supernatural yep yep so cool. Well, let's let's get into it if you guys are ready. Um, yeah, I'm ready. Tim, did, what, what did you did you want? Do you want to get your guest? Well, so, you're a guest. You get to pick the yeah. order. If you okay. want someone else to go first, we're totally down mm. to do that. If you want to go first, or you can go middle, you can go. Yeah, uh, I'll to you. go. I'll go middle. You go middle? middle. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, Christina. Uh, I think I went <laughs> first the last couple of times. So I feel okay. Like you All right, I'm first. I'm the one. I'm the one to go. It's okay. You. Okay. Okay. Well, mine isn't too long this time. Okay. Um, but uh, I found a really cool story uh, that I had never heard about before, and this is the Wizard of Marblehead, Massachusetts. Oh, sweet. Oh, cool. <laughs> a real wizard. Okay. So Edward Diamond was born in 1692, roundabout, um, and this was during the time of the Salem Witch Trials, and he grew up in the seafaring town of Marblehead, Massachusetts, and he stayed in that region his entire life. Uh, From his youth, Edward was always a little different. He had a tendency to fall into trances with his eyes rolling back in his head, um, he wouldn't eat or sleep during these fits, and when he emerged from them, he'd often have knowledge of the future or distant events that were going on. So these spells kind of worried his parents, who were understandably a little scared of him and his strange powers, you know? They were probably like, why can't you just slam doors and play your music too loud, Edward? Right, right. Um Edward later claimed that these powers had run in his family, though, for generations, and that he was descended from some notable astrologers. Um, And when his father died, Edward inherited a small amount of money, and he used it to buy some property at the foot of, and this sounds like something, you know, right out of fiction, 
horror fiction, but at the foot of a hillside cemetery known as Old Burial Hill or Old Burying Hill. And on this land sat an old, large colonial style house known as Old Brig. So Edward became a sea captain eventually. And I know. Yep. <laughs> tracking, tracking. Like, it's a whole right. thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you have like a, a little like a wooden leg and shit. Like, you know. Okay, sorry, go on. Okay. So and he continued to live in the area, as I said, even after he retired. And so at this point, he was no longer venturing out on the high seas, but he found himself a pretty exciting post-retirement career as a sorcerer. Um, so rumors had long circulated that Edward, you know, because of these fits that he'd had and just, you know, it's a small community, um, and people speculated that he was into the occult, and he earned the name Wizard Diamond. He was a tall, thin, moody man, so he looked the part. Um, he was also, by many accounts, a, a, like an imposing local figure, but was still respected in the community. So although they'd been over for decades, the Salem witch trials loomed pretty large, large in the public imagination. Um, and there was a stigma at this time against witch accusations. Um, so this probably made locals more likely to excuse his, his pretty eccentric behavior. More on that in a bit. Um, plus, it turned out he could perform a service um, because of his powers. So, um, he, despite being retired from his captain's duties, he still considered himself a kind of guardian of vessels at sea. And he also seemed to have a, a pretty theatrical bent. He really got into his wizard sea captain role. So, <laughs> he wore a long cape, and on stormy nights, Neighbors would see Wizard Diamond climb to the height of Old Burial Hill, which overlooked the sea and the crashing waves, and he'd walk back and forth among the gravestones with his cape flapping about in the wind, if you can imagine it. Like, he's this tall, (laughs) shadowy figure, and he would shout commands at the sea to be calmed. Um, And it's, it's like... Too bad they didn't have camera phones back then. (laughs) Because how kick-ass would that be? It's like a dancing video. Um... Uh, He'd also call out to the fishing ships and their crews by name and give the captain's advice for steering the right course to safety through the roiling waters. So like um, from uh, this book called The Old Seaport Towns of New England by Hildegard Hawthorne, which was published in 1916, quote, far away on the tempest-tossed sea, sailors from Marblehead were struggling to bring their ships to port. And there, among the graves, Wizard Diamond shouted commands to them, directing the invisible helmsmen, ordering the men to make or shorten sail, bringing the vessel safe to port as no pilot aboard the rocking decks could do. Wow. I love that Wizard Wizard Diamond sounds like an alt-rapper's name. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go with the metal band. Wizard Wizard Diamond versus MFD. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so there were numerous reports from fishermen and sailors who claimed that they actually heard his voice rising above the sound of the wind and the waves during storms, um, giving them these specific directions to safety from miles away. Um, And his reputation for helping seafarers attracted visits from wives and loved ones, so people would actually come to him and implore them to bring their sailors home safely. 
Um, so that wasn't the extent of his powers, though. He also had a knack for locating stolen items, apparently. So the townspeople and the, the police would sometimes come to him for help when something went missing or stolen, and he was said to have a very high success rate. So he would apparently go into one of his trances and then be able to identify the item's location and in some cases who'd taken it. And um, it's been speculated that his success was due to less magical powers and more to like deductive reasoning. Hmm. Um, so he was either a wizard or like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Kind either of way. Figure. Either <laughs> way. Cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You know? And the cape. Um, so in one story, there was a poor widow living in Marblehead who discovered that someone had taken all of the firewood that she'd been storing for winter. And she knew who it was. It was a neighbor. And if she had no firewood, she'd freeze to death in these cold New England winters. So she went to the constable, compl made a complaint. They didn't do anything for her. So she went to see Wizard Diamond and pleaded her case with him. And so he agreed to put a spell on the thief, you know, to bring about justice. Yep. So the legend goes that in the middle of the night, the thief woke up from a deep sleep and he had this irresistible compulsion to go outside, locate the heaviest log he could find and lay it across his back. And he couldn't stop himself. He found himself against his will trudging back and forth from his house to the widow's cottage all night long, basically from sunset until sunrise, dragging this giant log along with him. Whoa. Yeah. And at dawn, he finally, the spell was broken and he collapsed on the ground and he was crying out for forgiveness and clearly penitent and the widow got her wood back. And then there are, there are other accounts of thieves coming to him actually for advice and he charmed them into returning the stolen goods oh wow yeah. like like advice like how not to be caught or like or like just other stuff no no like no uh, it well i guess i guess i who knows what they were asking yeah, yeah, I see, but I see. like apparently he he you know caused them to return the stuff they taken so he's a good wizard <laughs> he was but benevolent by most accounts however uh -huh. despite these good deeds and most reports describing him as this benevolent guy there seemed to be a darker side to wizard diamond's reputation because um well as we said the witch hunts had ceased years before um but these townspeople were still highly suspicious if you can imagine. And so some sinister stories emerged alongside the positive ones. So some people claimed that they'd seen him practicing black magic in the cemetery thickets. I'm not sure why you need to go into the thickets, but yeah, I'm not even sure. It sounds itchy. Are, but... <laughs> it's a great place to practice black magic. Right. <laughs> Apparently. And then others said that they heard him speaking to the devil on the side of the, the old burial hill. Um, and many reports said that, you know, you basically, you don't want, you don't want to cross him. He'll help you out, but mm, don't cross him. Okay. Okay. So sometimes he'd venture into the center of the cemetery on the hill, not to calm the storm, but to call out for revenge. And he'd stand there and call out to the elements to form a squall and take out his enemies. So this is from a book called The Encyclopedia of the Undead by Bob Curran, 
who describes an account of how he would be calling out helpful navigation tips to different captains in their ships. He's doing his usual thing. But then it says his mood would shift and, quote, a shadow would creep across his face. And then he'd start calling down curses on his enemies and their ships and people who pissed him off, basically. Okay. And, quote, none of those boats whom he had cursed nor their captains ever returned to port. And then the book goes on to say that a famous row broke out between Diamond and a certain Captain Micah Taylor, master of the Kestrel, during which the seaman called upon the wizard to, quote, do his worst as he had no fear of him. On a clear, calm morning, the Kestrel sailed out of Marblehead Harbor. There was not even the slightest hint of bad weather, but all the same, Diamond climbed up to the top of Old Burial Hill and began his chant among the gravestones. Slowly, the sky started to blacken and dark clouds began to gather from the west. A gale suddenly blew out of nowhere and lashed the New England coast. The Kestrel never returned to Marblehead Harbor. She was lost at sea. And then, to this day, local legend has it and I thought this was pretty cool, that during violent th uh, Northeasters, the ghost of Wizard Diamond appears on Old Burial Hill, shouting orders into the stormy skies. Wow. Wow. Love it. This is so New England. It's so... Like, <laughs> isn't that, isn't yeah. that? It's like yeah, a yeah. perfectly New yep. England legend. Yeah. Really Weather cool. controlling wizard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazing. With cape, with revenge story. Yeah, the whole, the whole deal. And boats. <laughs> yeah he would have made a great anchor man like yeah. a weather guy cool when was that again what, what what was the year well he was born in 1692 so it was in the earlier 1700s oh wow okay okay so super so not that long after <laughs> the Salem witch trials or whatever it was no like, he was born during and, okay. and like kind of wow. right, right at the height of it and then I guess like you know when he was doing his thing it was close enough to it that you know people were you know, not likely to be accusatory. You know, they've I see. Lesson they sort of and, backed yeah. off. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was a really interesting stories. Yeah. Definitely like a different, different, took a different turn than I was going to, but yeah, that's really cool. Cool. All right. Um, so, Tim, are you, are you ready for yours? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, I have uh, kind of two things to talk about. Great. Uh, I've got my own personal magical experience. Yes, and I can't then, wait to hear uh, Cool. So, I, I can lead in with that because uh, I think Let's narratively it. it'll give some information for the next story, which is okay. about Jack Parsons, the, basically the American father of rocketry. Okay, uh, cool. Okay, so uh, my own personal magic experience, as I mentioned before, it's been something that I've been interested in my whole life. Um, uh, so throughout my life, I'd been collecting like magical tomes and magic books, you know, mm -hmm. I worked in a bookstore, so I had access to like special ordering things. So I was just collecting all of this stuff throughout my life. Um, in around 2009, uh, I, I like lost my job. I was depressed. I was out of work. So I had a ton of time on my hands and mm -hmm. all of these books on magic. And now like the time to really sit down and start studying them to kind of indulge this interest of mine that I've mm -hmm. had. Um, 
So I did that. I I spent a couple months like selecting one, reading through it, kind of understanding the uh, the rituals behind it. I, I selected um, like Western, it's called hermetic magic. Uh, mm-hmm. It spawns from like, uh, I, I'm, I'm never clear if it, if it spawned from the god Hermes or if there was a magician named Hermes. That, Is like, that related uh, to alchemy at all? It, I mean, I think it all, I think all of the Western magic systems, I think uh, railroad down into like the emerald tablets of Hermes or, or whatever gotcha. it is. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so it's all kind of related. It's all a, um, like a symbolic language where you can talk to your subconscious. That's basically what magic is. So I'm reading all these books deciding, yeah, I want to, I want to try ritual magic. I select a system, um, but at the same time, I'm also reading about the theory of magic, um, mm-hmm. and I'm reading about through um, Alistair Crowley, um, yep. okay. which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Uh, yes. But he's a uh, he was a British magician. He lived from I think 1875 to I think just before the 1950s. Um, and he was, by all accounts, a genius. Um, he was an expert mountain climber, uh, a, a grandmaster chess player, and also kind of took these old magical ideas and updated them for uh, his modern era. Mm-hmm. So he kind of, in his work, he kind of breaks down um, not so much the uh, why magic works, but how it works. Um, and it's uh, it's a conversation with your subconscious. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is your um, the intensity of your will and your uh, how how you want to organize your life to get like the results that you want. It's ba- it's basically that's, yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. But I was just gonna say like so is it kind of like. Um based on the idea that your subconscious has like a deeper knowing and that's kind of like the repository of all of these other sort of like ESP and the other Mm. kinds of. Yeah, exactly. Sixth sense. Right. It was, it was kind of like an early, very complicated self-help system. Um, But the, the, the things that I've learned through studying Crowley's work were that your kind of will and intention are really all that matters. Like mm-hmm. there's there's all these rituals and all these words and all these cosmologies that you can learn and do. Um, there's all these items like daggers and altars and robes that you can buy and wear, incense, and all of that uh, is theater, basically, to get right, you in right, the right. mindset where you're like, okay, this, my conscious mind and my subconscious mind they're here. They're together now. They're talking to each other. Right, right. Um, kind of like a Ouija board or something, right? Which is like basically a toy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But it's the sort of intention and sort of psychological uh, um, relationship that you have with it, right? Yeah, that exactly. could potentially invoke something, right? So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been studying that and I'd been dipping into uh, chaos magic, which is... Uh, it's fun. Uh, you guys should, you guys and your listeners should look up sigil magic. It's sigil kind of, magic. Okay. yeah, 
Okay. It's kind of the easiest and most like accessible way to get into magic and start playing with like magical systems. Um, but there's a specific part of chaos magic that's called uh, sigil magic. And it's, uh, I won't explain how to do it, look it up. Okay. Um, but, but there's, you create this sigil, which is like a representation of your intent for the universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you charge that, that sigil. And you okay. charge the sigils, like you charge any of your magical workings in like a number of different ways, like uh, deep meditation, self-hypnosis, mm -hmm. which also goes hand in hand with like ritual and chanting. Right, right. Uh, through emotional and physical exhaustion you can get there, drumming, dancing. Uh, but in Chaos Magic, the fastest and most fun and most accessible way for most everybody is through an orgasm. <laughs> so uh, oh, that's like okay, an easy okay. way to like kind of to kind of get into that, that so null is that, state. Is that like the like sex magic from Aleister yes. Crowley? Is that the yeah. basically the same thing you're talking about? Basically okay, the okay, same okay. thing. Yeah, that's all like I know a, about Aleister. Crowley. I saw <laughs> yeah, some documentary. Right. I was like, that's yep. fucking crazy. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a core tenet of uh, okay, his okay. his religion, uh, Thalema, which gotcha. is sex magic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. And, and the Jack Parsons story deals heavily with that too. Okay. It's really uh, interesting, and that kind of um, goes along with you know, some thinking by modern, you know, scientists and researchers yeah. and people, you know, who are looking at the ESP. There's a book that I really love by Diane Hennessy called The ESP Enigma. Basically, it talks about the brain being a filter mm. uh, and mm -hmm. not the generator of consciousness. And she talks about how, you know, based on the studies that she's done, that these altered states, like whatever it is, you know, whether you're dreaming, whether you're, you know, having some kind of like, drug trip whether you know you're you've been fasting or you know anything that basically puts you in this altered consciousness state makes it a little more permeable hmm. and so your yeah. consciousness is able to access you know what it already you know what your spirit already would know without yeah. the brain kind of like filtering it all Getting out so you can live in the physical yeah. world right. exactly yeah. i think exactly it's a yeah it's the way to uh kind of disperse the persistent reality of illusion right that's what einstein called it like it's what we see and sense oh, right, isn't right. necessarily what we're experiencing i love that right yeah. yeah um so i had been doing all this work kind of doing my own rituals and exploring my own like personal cosmology which was fun because it kind of forces you to develop yourself in ways that you may not have had to before and mm -hmm. like as I said before I was kind of depressed and a little lost career-wise and it 100% helped me like figure out what I want to focus on and where to go next in my life um, and while that's all in good like I'm playing around with magic I want some real right. magical effects here right. um, so I decided like what's the system to like turn to now that I know this like very and like the stuff that I know I, I believe is still very very base level like mm -hmm. I, I haven't gone very high in any of the degrees and any of the magical systems I've, I'm a, a journeyman I'm just dancing around from system to system so I'm like what system is the best to like have a legitimate experience so I discovered this uh, system called Enochian magic, Enochian vision magic. 
and Enochian was to give like a little brief summary of its like creation uh in the 16th century there was a man named john d he was the advisor to queen elizabeth one he was a mathematician an astronomer an alchemist and a cultist you know back when all of those things were all science mm-hmm. yep. um, he was obsessed with he was a, a very devout uh christian he was obsessed with uh, the idea in the Bible where Enoch, um, I think one of the dudes that lived after the flood, he yeah. doesn't die. He walks with God. So right. it's very mysterious. It's just like, <laughs> right. and then God took him. And right. then that's the end. Yep. So D became fascinated with that idea like, oh, you can contact God and not and not be dead to do it. So how do I do that? I see. Okay. Yeah. So he started investigating like scrying, like crystal gazing. uh, But he found that he wasn't able to get himself into a sustained trance state. He was too Mm -hmm. logical. He kept disbelieving that he was doing anything. Right, right. So he brought over uh, a partner to work with, this guy, Edward Kelly, who was also, uh, by all accounts, a kind of seedy character, but also a um, like an accomplished sorcerer and alchemist of the time. So the two of them set about to contact, basically, and did contact these angelic spirits who then, oh, shit. Okay. Com- over a period of seven years, communicated to them a language and a system of magic. Um, sometimes letter by letter where they had to write down the letters and then mm-hmm. translate them. And I think in the first, they, they gave them these things called keys or calls, which are like, uh, like these barbarous, um, angelic language incantations that, um, open up gates basically. Um, uh, and there's no evidence that Dee and Kelly actually practiced it. They just kind of uh, downloaded the information and translated, translated it. it. Right, right. right. Translated, yeah. Exactly. Um, it didn't end well for Dee or Kelly. It never really seems to end well for any sorcerers or uh, <laughs> magician. Okay. Uh, but they, we have this, like, we have this, this system that was given to us by angels, I guess. Okay. Uh, and these magical implements, so he used like a, there's all these sigils that you use in Enochian magic to kind of like place around your table and the middle under each leg. Uh, each have different, they're very intricate ornate symbols, very like geographic. Um, and they're there to like capture the energy and focus it and whatever. There's also like a scrying mirror, like a piece of black obsidian and uh, like a golden ring that you use. These are your implements to use Enochian magic. And all of these things, I believe the ring and the scrying mirror definitely are in the British Museum. So you can like see these artifacts. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what's what's scrying mean? Scrying is, um, so they use like a black obsidian glass. I think you can also use crystal, but it's, uh, you basically just stare into. It's like gazing into something. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's also, you could probably say it's a form of self-hypnosis as well. Because like when you're just staring at blackness, like trying to see your brain will imprint information there automatically. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. One sec. Yeah. No sweat. (laughs) 
Wow, that's so, really interesting that it's in the museum too. That this yeah. is like something that now, like there's there's an artifact from this, right? That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like this was real, and we have yeah. the the stuff. So this sounded pretty good to me to try for my first like real, okay. ma- my first real magical yep. working. It had a pedigree. The system seemed while um, rigorous. It seemed doable, uh, and I didn't need a. I used uh, this book. Uh, I'm holding it up, but people at home can't see. But it's called Enochian Vision Magic. It's by Lon Milo Duquette. And if anyone's interested in a well-written magic book, you would do worse than to find any Lon Milo Duquette books because he just writes very plain English, very easy to understand. Maybe um, we'll put some of these like recos or like mm, the books or something in our site, Christina. Just like idea. like links to stuff. We'll, so we'll do that. We'll do that later at some point. <laughs> Okay, sorry, go on. No, uh, so I chose a time when my girlfriend, who's now my wife, she was going to visit her um, friend in the Pacific Northwest. They were going on a trip. Yep. Um, so I was like, great, I'll have the apartment to myself. I can try this, like, ambitious, magical ritual. Um, and I did. I, like, I, through reading the this Lon Duquette book, he also... Um, uh, strengthen the theory that it's you don't need a, a golden ring. You can make one out of cardboard. You can print out pieces right. of paper These are symbols to use the sigils. For the mind. Right. right, exactly. So I did all that. I printed them out, made my like cardboard magic. Oh ring. wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I <crafty>. had. <laughs> yeah, I had. Uh, I used as the scrying mirror. I used a tablet turned off, so it was just the black screen. Right. And uh, I drank a. I was actually like looking at my notes because any good magician records their processes. Um, and I didn't remember this, but I, dr- I made very strong coffee and I drank like a ton of it right before as like a stimulant. Okay. Uh, and then I took like a hit of weed if we're allowed to talk nice. about that. Yeah, and then, <laughs> yep, uh, to just kind of get into that. It's legal state. here. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Uh, I wonder what the statute of limitations is. Um, so. Yeah, so I did it. Um, I remember it taking a very long time because there's there's these charts and you have to like chant certain ways through these charts, through mm-hmm, the names, mm-hmm. and like you have to do them a couple different times and then switch to other things. So I, I recall it taking a very long time. And then finally when it was uh, done, when I finished the chanting, I was uh, just sitting there staring into the screen and I, you know that... There's a, a feeling that sometimes you get when you're like kind of sitting in a room and someone walks in the room, but you don't you don't like see them or hear mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. You just feel like there's like know, a sensation of being seen or yeah. watched or yeah. So then I felt I felt that it felt like somebody had walked into the room from uh, I was doing it in our living room and it was the only doorway was like the bedroom door and it just felt like somebody walked through that door and like into the room. So, yeah. Was so, it scary or was it, I, it wasn't neutral scary. or? It, it was pretty neutral because okay. I'd, you know, I there's like certain rituals you do before. You create a neutral space so that you, like, bad things can't come in. Oh, Only oh, the things okay. that I want to come in can come right. in. Right, okay. Yeah. So I'm like, great. This is what, this is exactly what I wanted. Let's, uh, let's have a conversation <laughs> with this thing if, if there's anything here. So I... Uh, and it's so it's I, I'd have I had to look at my notes to kind of get back to the feelings and emotions because I'm so like far. Uh, this was in 2009. So that was a very long yep. time ago. 
So I, uh, I didn't, I didn't hear anything, but I got the distinct impression of something talking to me, like mm-hmm. I was having a conversation mm-hmm. with something. And I asked it its name, and it told me. And I asked it its sigil, and it told me. And I wrote those down. Uh, and then you know, we're just kind of feeding off each other's energy. And then I'm thinking like, this is what I wanted. Like this mm-hmm. is wish fulfillment a hundred percent. Right. Um, I convinced myself this is something that could happen. So now it's happening and that's it. So I'm like, uh, tell me something I couldn't possibly know. And then I received like three uh, visions because they were very visual. Um, one was uh, eating a roll. And I wrote that one down because it was like, I don't know what that means. Okay. Um, one was a very clear image of a, cla- a powder blue classic car with white leather interior. And I was like, okay. Okay, that's great. And then the third one was of my uh, girlfriend, my wife, uh, in Portland, kind of goofing around with her friend and like stepping into the street and her friend pulling her back because a car was coming which is not something like my wife ever does. She's very careful in crossing the street. Right. This so wasn't like, a memory. This was right. something you hadn't yes. seen before. Okay. Right. Uh, so I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And I was texting my wife during it, like, hey, are you okay? Is anything going on? But she didn't, she didn't respond. So that was a very interesting experience, but I didn't have anything tangible except for that. Uh, so I did like the little banishing ritual and dismissed the spirit and went about my life uh, kind of feeling like, oh, well, magic, there's no such thing as magic. I, I try, gave it my best shot and nothing mm-hmm. happened. Um, and then the next day I uh, was at work and my wife called and we were talking and her friend's friend was supposed to pick them up. And I was like, well, if he's driving a a classic blue car with white leather interior, don't get in. And then she was like, how did you know we saw that, that kind of car? And then I was like, wait, tell me what you're talking about. So she said the night before her and her friend had gone to a, uh, her friend's vegan. She likes to travel around the world and America eating like vegan food in different Mm -hmm. places. So there was a vegan hot dog place that they wanted to go to and the vegan hot dogs were called like vegan rolls or something. And I was like, no, that's, that's too, that's like too wishy-washy to be, right. to be like a hit for this. Right, right, right. And then she was like, but in the parking lot, there was a, um, a classic blue car with powder blue car with white leather interior. And they were, they both stopped and like looked in it and they were like, yeah, this is very cool. And I was like, that's super weird. And then she Whoa. did confirm that she she was goofing around and almost stepped into the street and her friend had to pull her back. And I was like, holy moly. Wow. wow. So this is stuff yeah. that's happening at the time. It's actually happened. Yeah. You know While what? This you're is doing the so, ritual. You know what? Yeah. It's, it's very strange. Yeah. It It is so, it feels very connected to the remote viewing stuff. Right. Yeah. We just very did an episode so. on a few... Right, right. Yeah, so it's weird. It's weird. And then I've tried since. Well, I tried one time since, but I couldn't get anything to happen. And I don't know if it's because uh, there's something that Crowley talks about. The You have to extinguish the lust for result if you want anything to actually happen. Like you can't, you can't be so anxious for something to happen. Mm, I uh, see. Because it just won't. 
Yeah. yeah. It's almost like you have to be in that state of flow that you get into when you're Mm -hmm. being creative, you know, when you, when, when that, like the editor comes in, it's just, it's all over, you know, you can't, it it stops that. Mm -hmm. So did, did anything like happen following that, like that you weren't trying to do? Like, was there like, Oh, like a, like a plate jumped off the shelf or something. No. Like there was like creaks in the no. night or anything that you felt like th- this thing had come back or, or no, whatever. No, not at all. And I, you know, I should like boot up the ritual again. And yeah, yeah. I, I have its name and number, right? <laughs> so I yeah. should be able to contact it again. But well, can, you say can I ask the, you a question? Yeah. Do, yeah, you, sure. do, you th- do you think that this was something that was outside of you or do you think it was kind of like a way of tapping into some kind of... ESP, remote view, viewing capability yeah. or something. I don't right. know. And you've I, got a connection with your wife um, yeah, you know, spiritually. Right. And- um, from all of the stuff that I know about the paranormal, it seems to to always kind of be most real in times of like stress or distress or anxiety or whatever. And I was definitely going through that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, it felt very much outside of me and it's not like I'm not prone to psychic experiences at all. Um, I've never seen a ghost. I have seen a UFO, but maybe we'll talk about that. Okay. Yeah. We'll have <laughs> oh a doctor that one. Okay. Yeah. You're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was very brief. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I think it might be connected to whatever all of this stuff is. Like it's, there's something in all humans that can access whatever this is but you your experience in the moment was that there was some sort of entity separate from yourself yeah that had come in physically come into the room even though you couldn't see it there was a physicality Uh of its presence and that you were having some type of dialogue you were hearing words in your own head or whatever or or something like that yeah yeah it wasn't a voice there was nothing like wasn't a voice but real or out loud but i was definitely hearing and responding to something and seeing something to a point but it's it was also my own reflection or my own silhouette in the mirror the scrying mirror Mm -hmm, the turned mm -hmm. off tablet um but it it looked like a man-shaped thing, like a oh, bald person oh. and like bare shoulders, but it could have also been like a my reflection right, like right. reflecting back at me. Right, right. Yeah. And can can I ask what its name was or is that yeah. something you keep private? No, I mean, okay. I don't. Let's, let's well, I don't know. I like, don't I was like a magician thing. <laughs> I don't like, know you can't either. say the names. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Let's see if anything happens. Uh, so its name is, okay, so I wrote down, it's like, there's like an A, a triangle, an R, an E, like a boxy O with like a thing coming out of it and like a big boxy T. But uh, in my head, it was like A or A real, A real, A A R E O L. Sounds yeah. like Grimes child or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah right oh maybe that's who i yeah yeah maybe that's who i contacted <laughs> yeah wow that's really cool that is yeah. really interesting that yeah. like and what's a sigil you said that it, you what what is a sigil oh yeah you you so it's sigil or something yeah so that would be i suppose like the graphic representation of who it is or what it is not quite huh. its name but it's like it synthesized into one like glyph oh wow cool yeah yeah, and I in my like other rituals, I'd like contacted uh, things that were definitely part of me that I could definitely mm. feel were like part of my own like 
cosmology, but not this. This was weird and outside. Were you ever like scared of like like this is uh, this is what I'm scared of? I'll be straight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm scared of like the like uh, the Ouija board scenario. Right? <laughs> yeah. Some somebody yeah. who doesn't know what they're doing is dialing up a phone into another world, and they have no idea what's picking up the phone. <laughs> but it sounds same, like you're doing same. things. Like, and what's gonna like you know? You sound like you're coming doing, around. Yeah. yeah. Doing yeah. things to like in, make some sort of assurances of what yeah. the interaction is like when the, there's boundaries on it or something. Like. Yeah, right. So there's yeah, there's all these like little mini rituals you do to uh, kind of neutralize and protect your space. Okay. And I specifically because there is another form of magic that's kind of like the opposite of Enochian called uh, uh, huh. Uh, goetic magic and okay. that's that's like demon magic that's summoning demons okay. so okay that's i mean if you shit. wanted that's to summon something yeah, scary yeah, yeah that yeah. option is there but <laughs> okay. i went for the angel so. yeah, okay. yeah no thanks yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> i'm good <laughs> yep. yeah so this was well, meant to specifically be quote an angel or some type of yeah uh uh you know, lighter, good, or for lack of a better word, right? Yeah, type exactly. of entity or, or yeah. being or something, right? And I don't consider myself Christian or religious at mm-hmm. all. Um, but you know, the people who created this were, so it's filtered through the, their personal, right. yeah, right, right. right. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, what a cool story. Thanks for sharing that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. My interest is definitely peaked. Yeah, yeah I wish I I wish there was more to talk about with it, but that's yeah, yeah. kind of, that was kind of, I got kind of the proof that I needed right, uh, right. along with all of the other stuff that I was doing before Yeah, that, that is something so for sure, right? I never yeah. really dove in after that. I, I still think about it, but it really does take a lot of time. Yeah, totally. Cool. Uh, okay. um, you want to hear about Jack Parsons? Yeah, let's yes. do it. Okay. Let's do Please. it. Okay, Jack Parsons. Um, he, uh, so I've been calling it, in my notes, I call him the Space Age Wizard, Jack Parsons. Uh, he lived from 1917 to 1952, um, and I posit he birthed the modern era. <laughs> so um, he was raised wealthy, uh, in a wealthy family. Uh, his given name is Marvel Whiteside Parsons, uh, but his mother called him John, and which became nicknamed to Jack. Uh, so Jack Parsons is how the world knows him, but his given name is Marvel Whiteside Parsons, which is okay. a great name. Uh, he, as a kid, he loved science fiction. Uh, he like wanted to see humanity go to the go to the moon and see space. Mm-hmm. He had an affinity for chemistry and rocketry. He was, by all accounts, a very smart kid. Uh, he, as he um, became a young adult, he uh, started studying rocket engineering. Um, around the time of the Great Depression, his family fell into uh, financial difficulties. So he had to, he was attending Stanford University, he had to drop out. Um, him and a bunch of his friends, uh, who all were similarly interested in rocketry and chemistry, uh, all got together and formed a, a private company to kind of create these, these experiments in rocketry and see if they could sell them. And they could, they did. The government uh, took a a huge interest in what they were doing. They were kind of um, developing breakthroughs in not just rocket engines, but in uh, solid fuel for something called jet-assisted takeoff or JADO. 
Um, and that's basically his claim to fame. He he engineered this solid fuel for Genesis and takeoffs that's basically still being used today in like space flight. Um, so with these new government contracts uh, and as World War II started, the government started like ramping up and wanting to buy more and more of his uh, rocketry technology, he became rich again. And he... He was a communist, uh, but he, well, he was interested in, in communism and Marxism, Marxism uh, as, a, as a young man in university. Um, but that kind of panned out and he found um, the occult. He found Thelema, which is Aleister Crowley's like new age religion of the time. Um, I'm not sure how... Uh, how widespread Thalema was in America. I know there are still there are still lodges now. Um, I don't know if it was a bigger thing then or if it's kind of stayed the same throughout. Uh, but anyway, he became a believer. He joined the 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 religion, um, and this is in uh, 1939. He uh, he joins uh, Thalema, and after a little while, he. Uh, starts a correspondence with Aleister Crowley and Crowley um, makes him the head of the California OTO Lodge. Um, with this mansion that uh, Parsons owns, he opens his doors to all kinds of um, occultists and drifters and dreamers and science fiction artists and writers. It basically becomes like a boarding house for all of these creative types. Oh, and science. And they had the best too. parties. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. man. Oh, their parties. The <laughs> <laughs> Probably both, I guess, yeah. depending on who yeah, you want to yeah. <laughs> who you wanna ask. Uh, so, yeah. So, like, Thalema is, um, I mean, you probably know some things about it just through the cultural zeitgeist. They're, they have, like, kind of three major, they're not really tenets, but they're, like, kind of overall guiding forces in Thalema. The first one is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, love is the law, love under will. So it's like whatever your true will is, and that's will mm -hmm. with a capital W, is your calling in life, your destiny, and you are to pursue that by all means necessary. That is what you're supposed to do here on earth. Um, do it with love, but if you can't do it with love, still do it anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the second part. Love is the law, love under will. So you have to gotcha. follow your true will. Uh, and every man and every woman is a star, meaning we're all like these sovereign entities into mm -hmm. ourselves, but also part of a larger tapestry right. of, of life. Um, some people have described Thelema as kind of like uh, a libertarian religion, where okay. and I could totally <laughs> see that, but uh -huh. that's... That's not how I like to interpret it, but I, it's, it's a fair take on it. Um, so Parsons is enmeshed in this religion now. So he's all free love and come share my space and let's do magic and, you know, do science. Um, so at the, at the time that he is becoming inducted into the, as the head of the California OTO Lodge. Oh, the, sorry. The OTO is the, the um, like function uh, the, I guess the church, I mean, it's not really mm -hmm. a church, but it's the organization that is the caretaker of the religion of Thelema. So if you, if you're a Thelemite, 
you join an OTO lodge, and OTO stands for the Ordo Templi Orientis. Gotcha. So while uh, Parsons was becoming the head of the California Lodge, he's working on contracts for the U.S. Navy. He's developing these better uh, jet-assisted takeoff engines, developing, like, this uh, smokeless um, fuel so that they don't, like, gush uh, smoke whenever they take off. He creates, like, a, a smokeless vapor trail. So he's, like, he's really killing it in both, in both aspects of his life. Um, but the, the, uh, not just because of his past with Marxism, but now that he's part of this like diabolic cult, diabolic in quotes, um, the FBI starts to take notice of him, which really isn't difficult because he apparently during rocket tests, he would, uh, enthusiastically intone, uh, Crowley's hymn to Pan <laughs> while things were like blowing up. Okay. So he was not like hiding his extracurricular activities. Right, he was right. like bringing them right to work. Okay. Uh, so in, um, 1945, uh, Parsons meets L. Ron Hubbard, who starts to come to the Parsonage. Right, okay, yeah. okay. So L. Ron Hubbard, we know, the founder of Scientology. Uh, yeah, we know <laughs> we know this guy. Uh, Parsons considers Hubbard to be like a true Thelemite. Like, this guy is in contact with, with his higher angels already. Uh-huh. He has no formal magical training, so I'm going to take him under my wing, and we're going to like teach him to be like a, a legit magician. And he's telling Crowley about him. And Crowley to Crowley. It's Crowley is in holy, not Crowley is in foully. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he takes Hubbard under his wing, um, and then in uh late december uh early january 1945 parsons begins like a long long form magical ritual called the babylon working uh and invites hubbard to participate as a scribe um and parsons uses enochian to do this as well uh so they kind of form a a d kelly relationship in this and in, in their era where one of them is doing the magic, the other is kind of uh, watching, scrying, and recording it. Um, so a working in magic is kind of like a long-form, multi-part, cross-disciplinary like project that's usually designed to bring about something like pretty big, pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and as far as I know, Parsons never... Uh, stated he he chronicled his process, but he didn't chronicle his intention, which you know makes sense when you're doing this kind of magic. You want to keep your intention to yourself, uh, oh, and then okay. let the universe like uh-huh. fulfill it for you. Um, so uh, much like Dean Kelly, they're working together. Oh, so from January fourth to January 18th in 1945, uh, the father of American rocketry, Jack Parsons, and America's biggest huckster to date, 
uh, L. Ron Harbour <laughs> secluded uh, themselves. To date, no. <laughs> well, I know. He's got some tough competition these days. But they secluded themselves in an attic at the parsonage to do these series of rituals, which included uh, making shapes in the air with various implements, chanting angelic names, scrying, and masturbating onto these their Enochian tablets. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, Parsons Parsons was the one doing the masturbating. Uh, Harbord was just watching and write, <laughs> writing it all down. Uh, oh, and they did it all uh, while listening to classical music most of the time. Okay, was uh, it because they were just like into it, or like that was supposed to be significant in some way to set the mood? Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. It wasn't Judas Priest oh, jerking okay. off on the <laughs> yeah, ancient right. tablets? Yeah, you <laughs> gotta really like, let's class this so up much. a little. <laughs> yeah, you uh-huh. class it up a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pinky's uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're doing this, and uh, on January eighteenth, um, uh, Parsons feeling kind of uh, despondent. He doesn't feel like uh, like it's working. Um, they decide to, he decides to take Hubbard out to the Mojave Desert to like do the last part of the ritual. Mm-hmm. And then apparently at sunset, once they finished, Parsons turned to Hubbard and allegedly all the, Parsons felt all the tension leave his body and he declared to Hubbard, uh, it's done, we are finished. That same day, uh, while they were still in the desert, a woman named Marjorie Cameron arrived at the parsonage uh, looking to stay there. Uh, I think her brother had stayed there, so she was going to meet him. Um, and it was like a cheap boarding house. Um, Cameron was uh, a red-haired, green-eyed artist and was, in Parsons' words, uh, a strong-minded and deter- strong-minded and determined with strong masculine characteristics and a fanatical independence. Um, Parsons immediately declared to Crowley in a letter that Cameron was the elemental he had summoned. Uh, quote, she has red hair and slant eyes, as specified. So it seems like he was doing this working to kind of summon a person into being into his life. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I see. What okay. does the yeah. red hair have to do with it? I'm just curious, as a, I, as a ginger kind of. Yeah, uh, yeah. I yeah, mean, there is some. There is some kind of lore out there that redheads have, you know, stronger ESP capability mm-hmm. and that. Kind oh, really? Of thing. I didn't. Yeah. I'm sure all that played into it. Um, but as um, once he met Cameron, which I think was a couple days later, they immediately. Uh, were attracted to each other and spent the next two weeks secluded in Parsons' room, making love and getting to know each other. Uh, When they emerged, the working continued uh, with um, Cameron and Hubbard now. But this is where the story kind of, I I was like looking for some like big, like big ending for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but it just kind of petered out. The, they did the working. It, it happened. They concluded and went on with their lives. Right. Uh, Hubbard tried to swindle money out of Parsons in like this boat scheme, a, okay. a boat scheme that would eventually become Sea Org. Right, uh, right, and, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Parsons took him to court uh, and that ended their relationship. Uh, but Parsons and Cameron stayed together like off and on for the rest of his life. Um, 
Parsons died uh, at the age of 37 in 1952 in an explosion in his garage. Whoa. Um, he'd, by that time, he'd lost his government contracts because of his like ties with the occult and right. Marxism. He was... Uh, they accused him of selling state secrets, but he was like, he, he wanted to leave the country. He wasn't, he didn't love being in America anymore. And he was thinking of going to Israel and working on rocketry, uh, with them, Okay, is, you know, big no, no in 19, <laughs> 1950s right. America. Uh, so one of my favorite conspiracy theories is that they, they had him killed. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Well, there's know. a lot of like that going around at that mm-hmm. time, wasn't there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, yeah. So he was doing pyrotechnics for movies and he wanted to, uh, get like a head start on the new project and something happened that in that garage and it blew up. Um, and he died on the way to the hospital. Um, Cameron, his body was cremated and Marjorie Cameron took his ashes and scattered them in the Mojave Desert, the completion place of the Babylon working. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But one thing that I, that has been very hard to find is what would, what the heck was the point of the Babylon working? Right. 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 So uh, I've read a bunch of material on it and um, it's hard to find any, anybody that agrees uh, as to the point of it. Um, and since he didn't record the results, it's kind of, we're kind of left to, uh, kind of make assumptions. Um, so some believe that he was trying to summon like the whore of Babylon, like one of the harbingers of the uh, apocalypse. Okay. Um, that's ambitious. Maybe. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Some think he was Maybe trying he to, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, that he was trying to open a gate into another dimension, like a mm-hmm. heaven dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think that he was trying to create a moon child. Uh, and a moon child is something that Aleister Crowley wrote about. And it's the offspring between a human magician and an elemental lover. So it's a magical child like you. So I guess the the point is that Parsons was summoning an elemental lover that he can then make love to and impregnate with a child. And then this child will be this magical child as Uh foretold by Crowley, who will either uh, have the power to lead humanity to a new spiritual age or uh, be the Antichrist, depending on who you who you talk to about it. Hmm. Um, But what I think he did, oh, oh, because uh, here's why I, I don't think that bears any fruit because uh, after their two-week lovemaking stint, uh, Cameron did get pregnant and they both decided that she should have an abortion, an illegal abortion at the time. Um, so it wasn't to produce any kind of real physical thing this I working. see. Right, yeah. right. So I feel like... Um, Wait, before I get to my field, let me let me okay. <laughs> finish my supporting evidence. Uh, so when he was finishing up the ritual, summoning his elemental, uh, he specified that he wouldn't um, believe it until the elemental provided a certain sign. Um, and when Cameron, she had to go to New York, and then when she came back in March, she told him a story about how she saw a silver-shaped a silver cigar-shaped UFO in the sky. Oh, and shit. And he took that to be the sign that she was the one that he was calling for in his ritual. Um, that date, 1946, stuck out to me because there, there's not a ton of UFO sightings in 1946. Um, 
But the next year, in 1947, we have, like, America's biggest flap of UFO, huh. UFO sightings. I'm talking the Maury Island sighting. <laughs> I'm talking Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting, uh, the crash at Roswell. All that stuff happens in 1947. So, uh, yeah, and then a lot of the Thelemic ideas that... Crowley and Parsons were playing with then like f- filtered down through the the culture through like Wicca and chaos magic and mm. you know self-help like the secret is basically uh, a form of thalema a form of magic you know the power of intention and attraction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I posit <laughs> that the working was to usher in this like new age the age of mm-hmm. uh in Thelema, they would call it um, the age of, uh, gosh, what is it? Uh, the Aeon of Horus is the... The Aeon of Horus. Yeah. Cause the, the Horus, the god, like the like right. Egyptian god. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Thelema deals a lot with uh, Egyptian cosmology. Right, so okay. Like uh-huh. Previous Aeons were the Aeon of um, Isis, which was like uh, mother cults and the mystery mm-hmm. cults of mm-hmm. Egypt. And uh, then it was the Aeon of Osiris, which is uh, the Redeemer cults like Christ, Odin, Osiris, Dionysius, these gods that keep dying and coming back to save us. Um, and now it's the Aeon of Horus, where it's the, um, the spiritual of awakening of humanity. Wow. Uh, the same thing as like the Age of Aquarius. So both happen oh, at around I see. the same okay, time. Okay, okay. Yeah, so that's what I believe the Babylon working aimed to do is to bring Usher about in this the, new age. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I was I was wondering. I was like, why not do something like good with <laughs> you know, trying <laughs> yeah. to do this like big thing? Whether yeah. you know what what whatever's happening there. Like, yeah. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. Jack Parsons. Wow, I feel like, like I definitely didn't know that stuff about Elron Harbor, but maybe I like in like some documentary somewhere about Scientology or one of these guys, Alistair Crowley, maybe some of the yeah. Parsons stuff came up, but I never really knew that how much of a catalyst he probably was for, for L. Ron Hubbard and like, and his yeah. sort of relationship oh, totally. with Crowley and all that. Like I didn't, I didn't know about any of that stuff. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Wow. Really cool. Well, some of that might play into actually my story. If you guys want to do one last one here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear it. Um, so I'm so glad that we're doing this. I'm so glad you chose this as a topic because, like, I really um, didn't and, I mean, still don't uh, know too much about uh, magic and and all this stuff. But, um, you know, I was very happy to sort of delve into it. I mean, there's so much there. I'd always, you know, I'd always taken magic f- sort of from my perspective of, like, you know, related to, like, um, shamanistic sort of sorcery or something like that. But I didn't really know too much about any of the... Um, you know, alchemical or, I mean, I'd cursory knowledge of like, that was a thing. And, you know, that, that there was definitely this thing called magic outs and the outside of, right. Obviously the sort of, um, illusory magic of, you know, that, that sort of practiced. Yeah. Uh, magic with a K. Yeah, we need to ha- right. do a whole alchemy episode. Yes. We're going to do it. It's just like, it's its own thing. Yes. It really yes. is. So, um, but I, you know, I assumed it had come from somewhere legitimate and, you know, I knew some stuff about the sort of writer tarot deck and all that, but uh, and some of the symbolism there. But you know, still don't know much. But um, was sort of um, 
uh, happy to learn about some of these things, you know, the, the sort of principles behind it, the intentions behind it, because it's very complicated. I think that's maybe one of the reasons I've shied away from it. It's like there's a lot oh, of like, yeah. complicated symbols and all this stuff. And But um, yeah. anyway. Yeah, on so, purpose too, right? On purpose, right. Yeah. Um, cool. So um, my story uh, is the story of Damien Eccles and how magic saved his life on death row. Okay, you're shaking your head so you know the story. Okay, good. Okay, cool, cool. Um, okay, so for those who don't know who Damien Eccles is, um, he is one of the three boys who came to be known as the West Memphis Three. So these were the three boys that were unjustly uh, convicted in 1993 for the brutal murder of three small children. Um, so I'm just going to give a little background before we start talking about sort of Damien specifically. Um, so the context is this all happened in um, West Memphis, Arkansas, during the satanic panic of the sort of late 80s, early 90s. Um, these boys came from a very poor community in a town that considered itself, you know, quote, Christian, you know. Um, I don't know why, but and viewed these boys as Satan worshipers because they had or cultists because they had uh, long hair, listened to heavy metals, and Damien Eccles, of all things, was interested in magic. So at some point in the year of uh, 1993, um, three young boys were found uh, brutally murdered in a creek. Um, The town just kind of really wasn't able to accept that one of their own was able to do such a thing, right? Just because of there was, I'm not going to go into the how they found the children, but there was, you know, they thought it was the work of cultists, right? This is definitely satanic panic type of stuff, right? Like there's, there's definitely indications that have nothing to do with any of that. Um, anyways, they, they assumed it was the work of Satan worshipers. And because they thought these boys were Satan worshipers, they went basically straight to them. Um, so the police were able to coerce uh, a confession from one of the, one of the boys, um, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., um, who had an IQ of 72, which categorized him as uh, borderline intellectual functioning, right? Also, he was a minor. I think he was like 16 or 15 or something. And um, he was alone during the interview, right? So it's pretty horrifying stuff, right? They definitely coerced him. And he, his, con- his confession was quickly recanted. So um, the whole trial was pretty painful, um, it doesn't really speak well for the people of this town. Um, this false confession was basically the only evidence they had. They had no physical evidence or even circumstantial. I think he was like, one of the boys were like muddy. And they were like, oh, oh, we found him in a creek. He's muddy. He definitely did it, you know. So um, so everyone basically just wanted it to be these boys. So during the trial, with so much lack of actual evidence. They actually presented Damien's interest in magic and the music they listened to as evidence, right? So this is one of those trials where they're like presenting like, oh, I don't no. know if they like presented song lyrics or played the music. Is it like the back masking where they played it backwards? And I don't know if they played it backwards, but they no, I think they were like literally like, listen to these lyrics. Like it talks about all this bad stuff. So they, so they're basically, their argument was this, like this music is satanic, just listen to it. And if it is satanic, then they're Satan worshipers. And if they're Satan worshipers, then obviously they committed these horrific crimes, right? That was basically the logic. And unfortunately, the jury agreed. And um, Damien Eccles, uh, he was a mere 18 years old, st- basically still a child, was sentenced to death row. 
Um, insane. Yeah. Holy crap. Really painful, really senseless. I mean, not only for the boys that went to prison, but also for the children whose murderer still walks free. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously this is like, this is literally a modern day witch trial, right? Sans only the misogyny, but with all the ignorance and sanctimoniousness. Yeah. (laughs) You know, this, this like paranoia and fear over people who are different on the outside. Yeah, but then also Mm -hmm. specifically witchcraft, right? Specifically magic, right, as being like an original threat to Christianity, you know, as it moved into certain places where there was paganism, where there was shamanism. And that like anything for a very long time, anything, you know, they burned one of their own saints, (laughs) the stake (laughs) as a child because she talked to angels. Right. Like that's that's the level of insanity that stuck around. Right. So this this happened not in Salem, Massachusetts, 1692, but West Memphis, Arkansas, 1993, only 27 years ago. Right. So this this is still a pervasive. We can simply say this is still a pervasive attitude towards things like magic. Right. Anything that would would be sort of deemed anti-Christian. Um, and we're, we're just seeing like sort of a new <laughs> sort of like uh, uh, a prejudice towards magic sort of taking place in different forms now. But we'll get into that. Um, OK, so uh, let's see. Where where was I? OK, so Damien Eccles uh, spent 18 years and 76 days on death row, locked down 23 hours a day at the Varner unit uh, Supermax the last 10 years of which in solitary confinement. Just let, like, let that sink in for a moment, right? This is an innocent person, right, who yeah. went to jail as a teenager. Right? Yeah, I, and I feel like I could have easily been Damien Eccles as a kid, too, because oh, yeah? I was a metalhead uh-huh. who collected magic books, 100%. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but, but basically he's in Arkansas, so... Uh, he is abused and brutally be- beaten by the guards, so much so that he spends most of his time in intense pain, lost, alone, brutalized, sick, constantly faced with the hopelessness of his plight, right? That's, that's the place he's in for almost two decades. Um, the trial, you know, obviously caught national attention uh, met in you know, the eye of many musicians, directors, documentarians. Some of them went on to become friends and supporters Right. I'm sure a lot of people know about the film series Paradise Lost um, that sort of covered the decades of their ordeal. And then, um, you know, over the year, despite all this sort of interest over the years, Damien confronted setback after setback. Oh, Damien, all all three of the boys, I should say, uh, setback after setback, fighting for and losing appeals uh, in Supreme Court rulings. Right. Uh, Even in 2007, after they found conclusive DNA evidence that the three boys were not only not at the scene of the crime, but a fourth person who was unknown was still (laughs) was there. Even after that, their fate was still largely uncertain. So um, even after this powerful new new evidence, it just it, it wasn't enough. Right. The state of Arkansas and the powers that be were hell bent, pun intended, uh, on keeping him in prison, him, all three of the men in prison, and putting Damien to death. So obviously this was for political reasons, right? They could be sued or held accountable for their actions or worse yet, have to admit that they were wrong, right? Ego is a powerful thing. Um, and even in the cold face of clear 
DNA evidence, evidence that would have immediately exonerated somebody else in a different circumstance, the state wouldn't budge. So ultimately, Damien and the two other men had to enter a plea deal. Um, basically, the deal made use of what's called the Alfred plea, which means they have to acknowledge that they were right, so crazy, that they were sort of rightfully convicted, even though they were innocent. Basically, it's a, like a guilty plea while still asserting their own innocence, right? It's pretty crazy. Um, they should have walked out immediately after that DNA evidence was submitted. Um, okay, so in 2011, their sentences were then revised with time served, and only then were the three now full-grown men allowed to go free, right? This is three years after the DNA evidence proved their innocence. And they're still, to this day, continuing to pursue their exoneration, and the killer still walks free. So throughout his time on death row, uh, Damien relied on two things, really, maybe you would call him one now, that helped him through his uh, pain and isolation, Zen meditation and ceremonial magic. So Damien read and meditated constantly. Uh, he even had a Zen master that would come um, from Japan to work with him. I think he studied a form of uh, Zazen that was related to like the samurai study or something like that, but it was basically, I'm not sure the exact school, but it was a Zen school. Um, and moreover, he studied and practiced ceremonial magic or what he calls high magic, uh, spelled with an added K right after the C. So Damien asserts that magic is not, uh, illusion and trickery, but a specific spiritual tradition, uh, derived from, uh, things like, uh, Gnostic Christianity, esoteric Judaism, uh, Taoist energy practices and um, and much more, right? Alchemy. Um, so low magic, he says, is what David Blaine and David Copperfield uh, and the like do. So um, I'm obviously not going to encapsulate this the way <laughs> you know do it justice, but basically what he indicates is that the practice of high magic includes visualizations, breath work chants uh, um, largely coming um, from the hermetic order of the golden dawn, you know, kind of like they're all, you know, as I sort of learn more and more about this and you you both sort of touched on this, like they're definitely like practices and techniques that are paralleled in many other types of spiritual practices, right? Like Buddhist chanting and visualizations very much like, sort of uh, um, Tibetan type of visual uh, meditations, um, things like that, that were meant to sort of focus the attention, uh, um, create uh, and control energy, much like you would in, say, Tai Chi, right? Um, okay, so, in, and so according to uh, Damien, um, these uh, um, practices really work. And this is a quote from him. I did magic to lessen the power of the politicians who were invested in carrying out my murder, he writes. I performed magic to draw freedom toward me. For years, uh, you know, he performed these rituals uh, intended to summon protective angels. Uh, And part of his spiritual practice, um, which he later defined as the art of shaping reality with intention and will. Um, And at one point, he says he was actually uh, successfully able to summon uh, summon one, um, and it appeared to him. So this is actually from a Guardian article, um, and this is in his words. Uh, it wasn't a person with blonde hair and blue eyes and wings on its back, Eccles says. 
Instead, it looked like two black triangles, one big triangle as the body, and a smaller one for the head. It had no discernible facial features, but I knew it was an angel. And I got why angels in the Bible say, be not afraid whenever they show up, because this thing was terrifying. He said uh, after that uh, initial shock of seeing this thing, he felt completely encased in the angel's clear light. So these rituals, um, you know, helped him make use of his uh, imagination and memory to transcend his sort of dismal conditions, right? Like he's in a, he's in a tiny cell in solitary. He says rats are running around, you know, like I can't imagine the conditions he was living in. No sunlight. Um, so he would perform, th- perform things like the fourfold solar breath, breath um, uh, where he would sort of visualize the gathering of this sort of sunlight into himself, into his limbs, um, you know, um, abused by the prison guards. This is a quote, um, they beat me so bad, I started to piss blood, he said. So he would picture these archangels shielding his body. So there would be entire days when I wouldn't even think about where I was because I'd be so absorbed in magic, right? So obviously he's using this not only to sort of gather himself within and sort of shield himself, but he also used them to sort of affirm his life. And I think one of the, I think one of you touched on like the idea of this like law of attraction. And I think he, from what I've read of the one book of his, (laughs) he sort of puts that at the heart of magic, right? This idea that uh, we draw the sort of our circumstances around us and right. And like, you know, you could, you can argue to what degree that's true, but we all know that our attitude towards the world largely at least dictates in an existentialist sense, right? Like what our experience of our life is, right? Yeah, we can be, absolutely. I think often we have more control than we think. Yes. Yeah. Specifically yeah. Where, where, yeah. I what, mean, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Where I have the trouble uh, kind of buying wholeheartedly into it, and I'm sorry to break in like this, is, you know, it it can uh, wrongly blame people who are in horrible circumstances. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point to me. And coming from the Christian side of things, when I was growing up, I saw that brand of it kind of almost like you don't have enough faith. That's why you're... Mm not healed. Well, I don't think he... The shitty thing yes. is happening. I think yeah. that's a bad attitude that kind of everyone has in their own way, right? We all walk yeah. around with that yeah. a little bit. I think we want an... Expl- as humans, we want an explanation for why the bad thing is happening to someone so that it right. doesn't happen to us. Yeah. Right. Right. So a lot of what um, Damien in his book sort of, I think, focuses on is not necessarily on that side of it, but on the side of it in which we have a choice of how to view our circumstances and the outlook we can have on them, right? And it's very hard to argue with him because it's like, what a dismal fucking the outlook worst he possible had. circumstance, and he yeah. was able to find himself in it. Because- he said while he was trying to find these this sort of positive these positive affirmative practices, he watched twenty people walk to their deaths. He said no one in on death row that he, where he was got off during the entire time he was there. And I think the year or two after he left would have been his time. Wow. So during, during Damien maintains in his book that, um, uh, the, the basis for these practices were meditative work. He said he would meditate for eight hours a day. Um, and exercises dealing with directing focus, 
focus and intention, attention, right? So he says, if you can't actually focus your attention, all these sort of magical rituals and, and um, affirmations won't be able to sort of hold water, take the, their energy out into the world. And um, one last thing that he, um, he says that, um, you know, one year prior to his release, when everything hung in the balance, he began, along with his wife, to vocalize a particular affirmation every day. And I'm going to read it. Uh, in his words, at some point, my wife and I began a particular practice to get me off death row. We each repeated a version of the following affirmation at least once every day. Here's mine. May I be home, free from prison, living happily with my Lori. May it come about in a way that brings harm to no one, to none, and is for the good of all. And in no way let this reverse or bring upon me or my loved ones any curse. So, Damien believes that this practice helped influence the outcome, right? This is the final year when they could have turned on him, right? Like he had to enter a guilty plea to get out, right? And so it's very hard to argue with him because this is his experience of his life and his reality. But you could certainly see, even from a skeptic's point of view, how such a positive attitude to such a horrifying ordeal would put him in the right headspace to not make dumb decisions, for instance, right? He could have flipped out and said, no, fuck it. I want to be, you know, I want to be, you know, found innocent, right? And the whole thing could have fell apart, right? He had a lot of power of people who wanted him fucking dead. So I think there's something very powerful in that, however you look at it. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, it gave him hope and meaning. Yeah, to- exactly. To and that's, that's yeah. magic in and of itself, right? To find hope and meaning in a circumstance like that. Um, so I'm going to read you one last guided meditation. This is from a talk um, he gave at, um, in Manhattan, which was also covered by The Guardian. Um, okay. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in a prison cell. He said, there's nothing in this cell but you white walls, white floor, white ceiling. On the back wall, there's a small slit of a window up so high you couldn't even see out of it unless you pull yourself up to that wall like you're doing a pull-up or a chin-up. He he tells the audience to imagine that they're doing that, standing in the back wall of the cell, feeling the the window ledge, feeling the cold, gritty content, uh, uh, concrete against their skin, hooking their fingers around the window's bar and pulling themselves up. As your eyes come right above the edge of the window, white light, white light roars in and obliterates everything, he said. You, the cell, everything. It's all gone, just white light. And so that is the story of Damien Eccles and how magic saved his life on death row. Very cool. Um, Pretty cool story, right? I was re- very moved by it, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm still continuing through his book and um, but it's pretty good. I definitely w- we'll we'll put that up as well. I think we got a lot of good book recos in this episode. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, his story is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah I didn't even know uh, until recently that uh, about the magical parts of his his story. Me uh, have you Me seen yeah. um, the Midnight Gospel? It's an animated show on Netflix. It's yes. By the, yeah. Oh, have, did you see his episode? Yeah, that's why. That's why. I, like, like oh, right yeah. around the time we were talking with Amazing. you about doing this episode, I was like, oh, I just yeah, because yeah, I didn't even know who he was. And I had to look up who the guest was. Yeah. That's something that I I constantly pay attention to 
after like post my magical practices is um, synchronicities. Synchronicities Synchronicity. always like kind of breadcrumb you to interesting yes. things. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, but he said something in that animation that uh, kind of blew me away. Like his, his like the, the. Th- the, the point of magic and the mm-hmm. in the grand scale is not something that I'd ever thought about. And in that uh, animation, he talked about it being like you can create all of these rituals. The the point is to create like a spiritual body for mm-hmm. yourself, so yeah. that when you die, you that spiritual body lives on, and you can retain your memories and personalities throughout your next life. And that's. Wow! I mean, yeah. here's hoping, right? Yeah, especially totally. for Damien Eccles. Yeah, yeah, and I like what you said about synchronicity too, because I mean that's a, that's a theme on this show. Like we've done an episode on synchronicity, and and I, like, there's a lot of um, I, I like the way Julia Cameron talks about it in the um, the artist way. There's a lot of parallels to the way he talks about this sort of law of attraction and being sort of in contact with the creative flow, right? That when you start acting in a certain way, when you start pursuing your passions, for instance, the universe, the world around you tend to, tends to respond. And I think that's, that's part of what is at heart of, of what I got from, from him and his experience. Cool. Wow. Well, that was a big episode guys. <laughs> wow. That was really cool. Yeah. I feel like we did. I feel like we've, we definitely know magic now. Yeah. This was some kind no, of ritual. I'm like sweating we, like crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. All <laughs> air conditioners off. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, I'm so glad you picked this topic and thanks for coming on, Tim. This was great. Yeah, no Thank problem. you, Tim. Thank you both for having me. This was great. I love talking about magic and weird stuff. So yeah. a- anytime. I'm yeah, great. maybe we'll do one on alchemy or maybe we'll have you back to talk about your UFO experience. I want to hear yeah. about your UFO experience. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think we did it, guys. All right. We all good? Heck yeah. yeah all I'm right. Good. Cheers. Okay. All so right. until next time. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. 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 Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Javlon and Christina Callaghan. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim. <laughs>